Hello, my friends! You're listening to the Must See Movie Podcast, your home for discussion about classic films, indie films, and films that I just happen to like a whole lot. I'm your host, Catherine, and today, on this very first episode of the Must See Movie Podcast, I'll give you a quick little introduction to the podcast, what I'd like it to be, why I started it, where I think it's going, and then we will be discussing our very first movie on the podcast, which will be On the Waterfront. Alright, so before we jump into our discussion of our very first movie, On the Waterfront, I'm going to give you a very quick introduction to why I started the podcast and where I think it's going and why I'm so excited that you're listening. So I got a book for Christmas. Um, Not this last Christmas, actually. Christmas in uh, 2018. (laughs) And it's released by TCM. So I'll try to link both the books that I'm going to talk about in the description so you can look them up if you're interested. But this one is called The Essentials, 52 Must-See Movies which may or may not be where I borrowed the title of this podcast. <clears throat> Anywho, 52 must-see movies and why they matter. And so, unfortunately, in 2019, I failed to watch a single one of these movies. But this year, I thought I should really watch these movies now. So here I am. Why not make a podcast about it, too? So I wouldn't say I'm a film buff. There are probably a lot of movies that you've seen that I might not have even heard of, but I would say that I really, really do love movies. And I've seen some of the classics, definitely not all of them. In the golden age of movie pass, I did watch a lot of films. So hmm, what year is that? 2017? I probably saw every single indie film released in the year 2017. So I do have that going for me. (laughs) But I really, really love movies, and as soon as I've seen a movie that has any kind of depth to it, any interesting plot characteristics, any interesting performances, the very first thing I want to do is go and talk to somebody about it, not review it, not have some esoteric conversation where I compare it to lots of other movies and what it was saying in the cultural conversation, but really just what did I like, what didn't I like, what worked for me what didn't work for me. So I really hope that that's what this podcast will become. I plan on taking a few movies from this book. I'm not going to watch them in the order that they're listed because they really do start with the silent films, and I'm just not sure how exciting that would be for the very first episode or two for you or for me. (laughs) So On the Waterfront is from that book, and I'll talk a little bit about what this book says about that movie, but... I plan on going back and forth, picking a few movies from this book, picking a few indie films that I both have seen and really want to see again, and haven't seen before and have heard a lot about. And as you listen, and you know, maybe as a few more people start listening, (laughs) if you have any recommendations, any films you want me to watch, you think I should watch, you want to hear me talk about, I'd be really excited to do that. I really would like this to be a place for discussion about movies, a place where just as I'm becoming more culturally versed and more versed in the history of film, maybe you can be too and we can get there together. Personally, I am not a film student. I'm not studying film from a technical perspective. And I see this as a benefit, you know, that means I'll just lack all the pretensions of someone with actual qualifications. (laughs) So there's nothing, I'm not pursuing a career in film or anything like that, but I just really love movies. I've seen quite a few of them. And what I love more than anything in the world is stories. A lot of my discussion is going to be about the stories themselves. I will talk about cinematography and performances and that kind of thing, but my heart is with the story. And so a lot of my discussion and my viewpoints will probably be focused on the screenwriting, the scripts, plot devices, things like metaphors, similes, all that good stuff. However, I do have a second book that I'd like to bring up, and I actually found this book in a thrift store, brand new, so how could I not buy it? It's called How to Read a Film, and it's by James Monaco, 
And I'm not going to lie to you, I haven't opened it yet, so I really can't tell you if it's good or bad or whether you should read it. But I'm going to try to read it, so I'll let you know how that goes. It does say 4th edition on the front, so it might be some kind of textbook, which I don't know, maybe gives it some kind of authority. But as I read that over the course of the year, I also hope that maybe I'll be able to pick up a little bit more formal terminology, maybe throw some of that good stuff in there. And then, generally, I happen to love Roger Ebert very, very much, and I love reading his reviews. His reviews are sort of the type of rev- the type of discussion that I hope this podcast will be. I am not saying that I am anywhere close to a Roger Ebert, but what I mean is I enjoy reading his reviews because they're not a critic's opinion telling you go watch this movie or not. That's part of it. But it's more of a once you've seen the movie, you can read his review and you get a greater depth of experience. And with all his knowledge and all the movies he's seen, he can bring that to the table too and help you to appreciate it more. Obviously, I am not Roger Ebert and I am severely lacking in most of his qualifications. But I hope that by talking it out, by telling you some of the things that I've read about the movies after I've seen them, by giving you my opinions and the things that I liked, the things that I didn't, and then you writing in and telling me what you agreed with that I said, what you disagreed with that I said, I really hope that we can really form this kind of discussion, this back and forth. So, even if your friends are not watching these classic and mostly wonderful, though sometimes, you know, we don't want to go there, movies, you'll have somebody to talk to about it. As I said at the beginning, my name is Catherine. I'll be your host and, you know, I'll be the podcast person for the foreseeable future. So there you go. Here I am. Hello. Well, I think that's a good introduction to the podcast. I hope that gives you a bit of an idea of where we're going, the kinds of things I'm going to be talking about. I will link the titles of those two books in the description and you can check them out. I can confirm that the TCM Essentials book is good. I really like it. It has some pretty pictures in there. I will not lie to you. Don't know if the other book is good, but I'll keep you updated as we listen to some more episodes. (laughs) So I think that wraps up the introduction. Now let's dive into the very first discussion of the Must See Movie podcast about the movie On the Waterfront. So, On the Waterfront was released in 1954, stars Marlon Brando, who I adore very, very deeply, and my, was he attractive when he was younger, but let's not dwell on that. He is in one of my all-time favorite movies, A Streetcar Named Desire, and I am very excited to do an episode on that movie one of these days, because, wow, is there a lot to talk about in that one. It also stars, you know, I'm about to say all these names wrong, which is pretty embarrassing given that they're pretty straightforward names, but here we go. Carl Malden, who was also in a streetcar named Desire, although I don't remember him in that one, so that's a bit embarrassing. Maybe I'm a fake fan. And it is directed by Elia Kazan, who also directed, oh, would you look at that, A Streetcar Named Desire. So it seems like must have liked each other, got together on quite a few projects. The summary of On the Waterfront in IMDb is an ex-prize fighter turned longshoreman struggles to stand up to his corrupt union bosses. And I would give you my summary, but I think that pretty much covers it. So there is so much that I want to talk about with this movie. I really, really enjoyed it, and there were very few things that I didn't like about it. And don't worry, we will talk about the things I didn't like about. Uh, Today's discussion, the main thing that I really, really, really want to talk about, of course, is Marlon Brando himself, his performance, his character. I think this entire movie is basically about him and me and probably just about every other viewer is perfectly okay with that. So I'm going to be talking about a lot about him and his performance and how that contributes to the movie and the story as a whole. But before I get to that, I'm also going to be talking about this as an old movie, black and white movie, and how that kind of contributes to the story. 
as well as the simplicity of the movie and its similarity to a play and how I think that benefited the story and benefited a lot of the performances. So we have a lot to talk about, but before we get to that really good discussion, things I like, things I didn't, I'm just going to address the elephant in the room. Marlon Brando is wearing eyeliner in this movie. (laughs) Very rough union worker unloading ships. And yes, he is wearing eyeliner. And yes, it is very, very noticeable. Oh, Marlon, I wish it were different, but there it is. You know, I, I just, I don't know what there is to say about that, but quite unfortunate. And before we get to the discussion, before I forget, I would just like to let you know that I checked this movie out of my library to try to watch it. Of course, the DVD was scratched, but I did manage to find it online for free, offered by Crackle, and I watched it without an account. So there you go. If you'd like to watch this movie too, if you haven't seen it yet, there you go. There's an easy way to do it. Right. Now, before we get to the discussion, I have one more joke that I wanted to make. At the start of the movie, opens with Marlon Brando and the union leaders leaving a cabin, and, you know, you see the boat in the background, and they head into town, and Marlon goes and calls up to one of the other workers who lives in an apartment and goes, Hey, Joey! Joey! Trying to get him to come to the window so that he can send him to the places where the bosses want him to go. I would just like to say that at that moment, I was thinking, number one, am I going to like this movie? And number two, Marlon Brando has made quite a career of yelling things at balconies. Well, if you didn't get that reference in this episode, I will probably be making the same joke when I talk about A Streetcar Named Desire, so you'll have two chances to laugh. (laughs) Right, all that is out of the way. Now, I'm going to start talking about the first thing that I want to address which is this being an old movie. I know that doesn't seem like a lot to talk about, but I really think, for one thing, I just think it's interesting to compare movies that were released almost 70 years ago now to movies that are released today. I mean, might sound a bit obvious, but I just find it interesting how different the pacing is, how slow the camera seems to be moving. I think that movies in those days tended to be shot a lot more as if they were simply plays and were not using the camera and shots and angles to the full potential that I think a lot of movies today use them in. There were a lot of very, very long shots. For example, when Marlon and even Marie Saint were talking, there were quite a few scenes where the camera was simply still and we're watching them talking. Now, I think most movies today would do close-ups, would zoom in, would zoom out, would show the back of her and the front of him, the back of him and the front of her, but I think the camera was a lot more still in this movie, and I really think that contributes to a lot of the remarkable performances. I think because a lot of the shots, a lot of the camera work, a lot of the movie cliches we see now are so understated that you really, really get to appreciate all that Marlon Brando does with his performance. I think one of the best examples of this is the car scene between Marlon Brando and his older brother Charlie, and that's also the very famous, I could have been a contender. I would just like to say that I had never heard that line spoken aloud, although of course I've heard it referenced countless of times. And I really thought he said that line yelling. And in terms of the movie, you know, made sense that he wasn't yelling. But I'm not going to lie to you when I say I wasn't a little bit disappointed. I was I was expecting a Stella level. I could have been a contender. But, you know, I, I, guess, I guess the quiet conversation is better suited to the movie. <laughs> but I, I think that scene is a really excellent example. And it's interesting. So in this Essentials film book... They talked about how the director actually wanted that scene to be shot in a moving car, but the producer decided to nix that idea so they could save money. 
And so they ended up putting the blinds in the taxi instead of a rear window so they could save money. And I think the simplicity of that shot, the still camera, we just see the actors. And of course, it's wobbling a little, so you know they're in a car, but no outside view, nothing. That scene could have been in a play, but I also think the power and how memorable that scene in that scene is comes from that very still shot and allowing you to just feel the emotions that are between those two really excellent actors. I also think this movie being shot in that sort of old style of filmmaking is part of the thing that really helps it not become a cringy, cringy melodrama. This movie has all the elements of the worst kind of soap opera, a priest beats somebody up, there's quite a lot of heavy, heavy, heavy emotion. The foghorn scene when Marlon Brando is confessing to her that he played a role in her brother's murder and she's screaming and there are tears in her eyes. I, I respect where that scene was coming from. I think it was a really interesting decision to cover up his words with the sound of the foghorn because, of course, we of the audience have already heard that confession many times and it would be boring to hear it again. But I think, you know, I can respect where that scene was coming from, but to the modern viewer, I think it veers a little too much into melodrama. However, the rest of the movie manages not to, and I think the simplicity of the camera work the fact that it's shot in black and white, the understated performances of the actors, even when they're sort of doing these extremely emotional and crazy things. I don't know if that last comment really made sense, but you get what I'm trying to say, I hope. I think the oldness of this movie has the, the idiosyncrasies that come with this movie being shot in the 1950s are what also allows it to age better today and to allow a modern viewer to appreciate the story on some level without being turned off by the extreme melodrama or the slower pace than we see in today's movies. The one thing that I would like to say about melodrama, however, and this is very unfortunate because I really do think a lot of this film is phenomenal, the very last scene when he's stumbling into the warehouse and the camera zooming in and out of his rolling eyes and the camera's all wobbly and we see his feet stumbling and we see his eyes rolling back. Oh, I don't think there is a modern viewer who could appreciate where that scene is coming from and that is just so unfortunate, but man, that was really hard to watch. It just doesn't hit home like I think. It might have hit home with audiences in the 50s. <laughs> so it still bears its marks of age, unfortunately, as much as I wish I could change that last scene. Why did they have to choose then to do the fancy camera work and the zooming in and out and all that? Oh, I just don't know. So now talking a bit more about the simplicity of these older movies, I think it lacked a lot of the sort of narrative devices and crazy shots and callbacks that a lot of mo modern movies have now. I think the story was very, very simple and straightforward. We start at the beginning, where Marlon Brando has a doubt, starting to feel his conscience a little bit, realizes that maybe his brother is not involved with the best people, meets that worker's gr uh, sister, <laughs> not girlfriend, meets that worker's sister, again. He met her once and they were both younger and uh, they like each other and she sort of pushes him towards that conscience and then he's presented with a decision to testify or not against the mob bosses and then the rest of the movie is him coming to that decision. Very, very simple, very straightforward and not a lot of playing was done with that kind of structure. Not a lot of playing was done with different avenues of that. The story was very simple and very straightforward, but there were a few small moments that I think were really, really fantastic. And I think what makes them even more interesting is that they're so small and so simple and such little things in this very direct movie that doesn't have a whole lot 
of, I think, metaphors, symbols, that kind of thing that we might see in other movies. The first thing that I loved, 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 that I noticed after the scene had already passed and it really hit me and I thought it was amazing is, of course, the movie begins with Marlon Brando calling up to Joey to get Joey to go on the roof so then he can be killed up there. <laughs> Lovely. Love the mob. It starts with him yelling, Joey, 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 and then Joey comes to the window, looks down, yells back, goes upstairs, and that's where he's killed. Later in the movie, when Marlon Brando knows the mob is going to be after him and have already gone after his brother, he's in that very same apartment because he's talking to Joey's sister, and he hears them yelling to him, Terry, Terry, something's happened to your brother, you gotta come down. And then he goes down, and that's, of course, where they're planning to kill him. That sort of callback to the earlier scene is just really, really interesting and sad and sort of cements everything, cements the mob's power over these men in this town, cements Marlon Brando's role in this whole thing. I think that was just a very interesting and small little callback. And another thing the movie did that was very similar and, oh, I really, really love it. The whole movie, we've been very aware of, gosh, I know there must be a name for them, but I cannot think of the name, so I'm sorry if it's bugging you that I'm saying the wrong word. But, you know, basically, the whole movie we see the workers carrying these metal hooks so they can perform their jobs, so they can open the boxes and unload things correctly. And I wouldn't say the movie ever drew attention to these metal hooks, but they were very clearly there in many of the scenes. We always see them walking around with these hooks on their shoulders. And these hooks are also the sign that the mob has been there. For example, when Marlon Brando finds his brother, he's hung. His corpse is hung with that metal hook. Later, when he finds that they've killed all his pigeons. Oh, and I can't wait to talk about those pigeons, but... Talking about the metal hook now. When he finds that they've killed all his pigeons, the metal hook is there. Something very small, subtle, that I really loved, that I think was so such an interesting choice and a very simple little moment. When Marlon Brando goes to confront those mob bosses on the docks, he's standing on the ramp leading down to their cabin. And he takes the metal hook off his shoulder and he throws it at their door to get them to open up. And when you're watching it, it's like, oh, he needs something to throw so they'll come outside. Picks it up, throws it. But the symbolism of that, that they have been leaving that metal hook as their calling card after all their destruction. And he chooses to address them to begin the fight in the same way using that metal hook. Unfortunate he didn't keep it with him or he would have won that last fight completely, but that aside, I think that was a really neat callback. I really loved the settings in this movie. As simple as they were, I think they really added a lot to the story without taking away or being distracted from the performances. I especially loved the constant establishing shots of that massive boat sitting in the harbor. Of course, obviously makes sense. This is a movie about longshoremen. <laughs> but it also kind of gives you this idea of there's this massive power that is what rules this story, rules this group of people, rules this community. That boat is like a symbol of the mob's presence, the mob's power. I just, I think that that shot was not overused, but I think bringing it back again and again in addition to establishing the setting, was also a, a very powerful and large reminder of where they're living, what their lives are like. A few more very tiny things that I just really liked. I loved his bloody arm in the bar after he takes his brother's dead body down from the hook and then decides to go and kill the mob bosses himself. I loved that trail of blood on his hand and his bloody arm. It, oh, it just, I think it really captured everything that was going on in that scene. That one visual of him leaning on the counter, 
holding the gun in one hand and his bloody hand leaning on the counter. I've said many times, (laughs) sorry, (laughs) I have said again and again in the past 20 minutes, not a lot of super interesting camera angles, but I did notice there were several really good uses of the chain link fence around the pigeons. And I think the use of that fence for shots was interesting because that's the kind of thing I don't think you could really do so effectively in a play. But there were a lot of times when, for example, when he was having one of the first conversations with Eva Marie Saint and he was showing her the pigeon and poked the egg through the chain link to her. That's just a very cool image and relates a lot to what's going on in the story. And then later when he finds the pigeons dead and he's sitting alone in that cage and when the investigator comes to try to convince him to snitch on the mob bosses and he's in that cage and we see the chain link all around him, I think that was a very simple but powerful image that said a lot about where his character was at that moment. The last thing I want to say about simplicity is I think... There was a lot of simplicity in the dialogue, which I loved. And just the most vivid example of this that I just want to say really quickly because I really thought about it and I thought it was a very cool decision. When he's sitting in the bar and he's talking to Eva Marie Saint for their second big conversation, he tells her very briefly about his childhood. And he talks about living in a boy's home and he just says along the lines of, gee, what a house it was, and keeps talking. And I mean, of course, a lot of that is owed to Marlon Brando's performance. Love that guy. But, I mean, so much was said in that one sentence with the proper inflection that 10 more lines of dialogue would have diluted and not conveyed as clearly. And I just thought that was a really excellent moment. There are a lot of examples of this throughout the movie, I think, but that one in particular just really stood out for me because he said a lot while saying very little. Now that I've covered a lot of that, I think we can finally, finally talk about the performance of Marlon Brando. What a phenomenal actor. How fortunate we are to have this movie to remember his talent by. Oh, I absolutely adored his performance in this movie. I think this movie was created just for him and I am perfectly okay with that. I think watching, seeing both sides of him and both are equally there, the gentleness to him and the toughness to him. Now, I think there have been a lot of characters and a lot of actors who have a character who seems to be a tough guy but is really gentle on the inside and it's all just a front and I think that's almost true of this character Terry but I don't think it's fair to say that the toughness is just a front because as we get to know his character we hear about the hard things that he's been through in his life and we see the community he's living in and of course he was a fighter and still is a fighter as we see in the last scene So I don't think it's fair to say that the toughness is only a front, but I think he really, Marlon Brando's performance really captures the balance between the toughness and the roughness of his upbringing, of his life, of the way he speaks. At at the very beginning of the movie, when the inspectors come to talk to him and try to get him to rat, I didn't think he, I didn't know anything about this movie before I started watching it. I didn't think he was going to be a likable character because that roughness is really believable. But then as soon as he starts talking to Eva Marie Saint, you see the gentleness that's in his character, the sweetness, the innocence, which is a strange word to say given that he's doing so many dealings with the mob, but it's true. His character does have still a lot of innocence in him despite everything that's happened and I think it's incredible that Marlon Brando's performance can convey that. One thing about his performance that I read in Roger Ebert's review that I read in this book and that I picked up a lot on myself when I was watching the movie was his naturalism and the way that he kind of 
fiddle with props during scenes in a way that was never distracting, but that was really intriguing and added to both the believability of the performance and the undercurrents. I think the most prominent example of this is when he's walking Eva Marie Saint home and she drops her glove and he picks it up and he plays with it while they're talking and then he puts it on his own hand. And that is just subtext that you could read in 10,000 ways and none of them would be wrong, but it was just so interesting to see it and I really, really loved that moment. I don't think Eva Marie Saint was the wrong choice to play opposite Marlon Brando because they did have a lot of chemistry together, but this is a very minor thing. I don't know if anyone else has noticed this, but I didn't love her performance just because she had this really weird thing going on with her mouth the whole movie (laughs) where it was like kind of half open and almost smiling but it wasn't smiling because it was during serious scenes and oh I know that's such a minor thing and I don't know if I'm the only person who's noticed it but that just really got on my nerves so I'm sorry if I'm not saying too much about her and you really liked her performance but just didn't really do it for me. However, I do think she and Marlon Brando had a lot of chemistry together. And I would also just like to say, while we're on the subject of his gentleness and his innocence and his sweetness, his line in the bar, when she says to him something along the lines of, oh, what was it? People, we should be nice to everybody. We should be interested in everybody. And he says... What a fruitcake you are. Oh, that has got to be one of my favorite lines in cinema. I will be holding on to that one. I will be whipping that out of my back pocket and nobody is going to get the reference, but I will. And you will. So there you go. You're welcome. Impress your friends. (laughs) I think it almost maybe was beating you over the head a little bit with it, but it worked. The many scenes when Marlon Brando is with with those young boys taking care of the pigeons, it's almost too easy now, I think, to show a character with some kids and show them getting along sweetly when that character is meant to be tough, to convey a lot of information, and it is effective, but I think at this point, I don't know, it might be almost overdone. However, in this movie, I think it really conveyed how gentle he can be. And now that we're talking about the boys, I think it is time to talk about the pigeons. Now, I think there are some people who would say that having such an obvious metaphor embedded in a movie that contains all the ideas of the movie can be a bit overdone. I respect that. I feel that. I've seen that happen before. It can be a bit annoying. However, I am also an absolute sucker for this technique. And I don't remember when in the movie it was. I think it was early on when he's talking to Eva Marie Saint. And he says, gotta protect the pigeons. There's a lot of hawks in this town. And we see him spending the whole movie trying to protect the pigeons. If that is not just such an excellent use of symbolism, I don't know what is. It reminded me so much of the movie Drive. And if you have not seen Drive, I absolutely beg you to because I have probably seen that movie four times and I am thrilled to be watching it a fifth time sometime soon so I can do an episode about it. But Drive is more of an indie film released in the last 10 years, but there's a scene in Drive where the main character is telling a friend the story of the scorpion, how there was a frog who wanted to cross a river, asked the scorpion, no, frogs can swim, huh? Whatever animal it was (laughs) that couldn't swim, it asked the scorpion to take him across the river, and the scorpion stung him, and as they were both drowning, he said, why'd you sting me? You hurt yourself. And the scorpion said, it's who I am. It's what I have to do. And that whole story ties into that movie really beautifully. And I am just a sucker for that device. I think the whole pigeon and hawk thing tied into this movie so beautifully and so effortlessly. And 
after Marlon Brando's excellent performance. I think that might be one of my favorite things about this film is that edition of The Pigeons. I mean, you can go with it in every direction. You start at the beginning, the fact that he's taking care of Joey's pigeons, who's the man that he had a hand in killing, is just really sad. Really, really sad. And I would argue that he's going above and beyond what all of Joey's friends are doing after his death, because he's the one who's taken it upon himself to take care of those pigeons that Joey cared about so much. I think the scene where Eva Marie Saint finds Marlon Brando sleeping on the roof to protect the pigeons from the hawk, number one, everything that's going on, of course, need I say it. Number two, such a beautiful scene, and it has got to be one of the most romantic kisses I've seen in cinema. How precious. And then number three, just the fact that he's sleeping on a roof to protect some birds just says a lot because how many other of the characters in this movie would have done the same thing? It's just really showing his heart even when his other actions usually try to hide it. And I think that's another thing that really, really crushes you at the end when the mob has gone in and killed his pigeons. The pigeons are just these innocent things that he was trying to protect, trying so hard to care for and protect, and they went in and killed them. I mean, to speak about the symbolism is almost to weaken it, but hey, this is a discussion podcast, so I'm going to do it anyway. (laughs) She's asking him to leave. And he's looking at these dead pigeons, which is so meaningless. And he even says it to her in such a broken voice. Why they have to do it? If he leaves, they're going to do the same thing to the men if they don't end up getting caught by the feds. Because that's what they do. They're cruel and unnecessary. And I just think that was such a powerful image and illustration of what he was really fighting against and of course also the consequences of his actions it's easy to think of course report on the mob why wouldn't you do it but it's like he put he sacrificed a lot of himself to do that and I think that was a very powerful depiction and illustration of that in addition to this whole tension between gentleness and toughness going on in his character I think there's a really really sad thing (laughs) that was not the most eloquent way to put it but I think there's this really sad undercurrent of his awareness of who he is and who he wants to be wanted to be and could have been of course all this comes to a head and is beautifully encapsulated in the I could have been a contender scene but it's also reinforced earlier in the movie so in his very first conversation with Eva Marie Saint he tells her you know I respect education my brother had a few years of college and he asks her what college is like and on the one hand it's a bit of cute banter and it's a bit of sweet he's trying to get to know her he obviously likes her but on the other hand He didn't have that experience, and you can hear in his voice and see in his posture and see more and more as the movie goes on that he really does respect education. And as he says in the taxi scene and the contender scene, he could have had class. He could have been that, and he wasn't. And I think the whole movie is him trying to overcome that. He says several times, I'm just a bum, I'm just a bum. And in the last scene when he shows up to do a day's work and they pick the real bum in the movie over him to do that work, you can just see how crushed he is. And he feels that he himself is a bum the entire movie. And I think one of the incredible things about this movie is that he starts out with such a sad and negative view of himself 
And in the end, just as much as he's changed his community and done something heroic and helped other people, I really think that you can see him change his view of himself through his actions. And of course, you know, it helps when a woman sees you the same way. (laughs) But I think that's a really, really powerful thing. And so this leads me to a sort of a reinterpretation of the entire movie. I mean, maybe this is maybe this is obvious to some viewers, but when I thought and thought and thought about this movie and I came to approach it in this way, it really revolutionized the whole thing for me. So buckle up. This is exciting. Well, in this Essentials book and Roger Ebert's review and all the other articles I read about this movie before I started talking about it, the director, Eli Kazan, ratted on some communists in Hollywood at that time. This movie was released in the midst of the Red Scare and the communist problems that were going on in Hollywood at that time when everyone was reporting on everyone else. Horrible time. All that. You know the story. And if you don't, you should look it up. Wikipedia will tell you a lot better than I can. But... This was during the time of the Red Scare, and Eli Kazan wanted to direct this movie, basically to defend his own actions for reporting on communists in Hollywood. And I think, in a lot of ways, knowing that changes the movie for the modern viewer. I mean, I think first and foremost, just about everybody agrees that the Red Scare and the Hollywood blacklist and all that was a really horrific time and not a good thing and the McCarthy era and all that was pretty horrible. So I already think that having that in your mind as you're watching this movie and going, a guy did this to defend himself doing these horrible actions, I think that already makes it difficult to appreciate this movie for a beautiful story knowing that. I also think just the neatness of the movie and the victoriousness of the ending is also just difficult for a modern viewer. I think part of it is just, you know, culture changes, people's perspective change. And I think also the way storytelling has evolved. To the modern viewer, this movie feels a bit too neat and a bit too easy at the end and a bit too, woo, good always prevails, la-di-da, and everything is righted in the end. I think that feels too easy to the viewer. And I also think that seeing this, knowing the history of why this movie was made also makes the whole thing a bit hard to stomach. It very much rings of these American movies that were made in the 40s and 50s when there were rules about the way the movie had to end and everything was a moral picture. However, all that being said, So I think if you view this movie as a sort of societal hero story, it becomes a lot weaker to the modern viewer in our day and age, given the culture, given movies that have come since then. I think you appreciate the artistry of the movie a lot less if you view it in that light. However, I think that forgetting society, forgetting heroes, forgetting All that sort of thing, which of course are themes in the movie and are relevant aspects to the story. I think for the modern viewer to view this movie instead as a character study, as a character arc, as a whole framework to get into the character of Terry and see where he's coming from and see how he changes over the course of the narrative, I think that really helps to understand the movie as a whole and to be able to appreciate it in a modern time and to be able to really, really appreciate the brilliance of Marlon Brando's performance. Viewing this as a character study and watching the tension between the gentleness and the toughness of Marlon Brando's character, watching his evolution in the way he thinks about himself, starting out thinking that he's a bum, thinking he has no class, because of the actions he's taken, because of the things that his brother did to him as they explore in the contender scene, 
And watching him start with that and go to the place where he stands up for what his conscience has been telling him the whole time, even though it's difficult. He makes up for the mistakes he made in the past when he threw that fight for the sake of his brother. He loses a fight again for the mob, to the mob, and then he gets up and wins the war anyway. And I also think, so there was one scene that just kind of bothered me when I was watching this. A bit of a silly thing, but when he goes into the bar to shoot the mob boss and the priest comes over and says, you can't shoot him, you can't do that, and gives all these moral reasons, that that bothered me a little bit because I was thinking, to be quite frank, this is the mob. If you don't shoot him, he's just going to keep doing it. The cops will never catch him. What I, I, I really don't see why it's a bad idea for him to shoot the guy. Yeah, he'll get shot in return, but I think that's a pretty likely outcome anyway. So maybe I just like violence a bit too much, but I was really thinking, you know, I don't know if the priest's arguments are holding a lot of water. I really think it might be better if he just goes all Godfather and wraps this up. Oh, foreshadowing. Marlon Brando did play the Godfather, didn't he? <laughs> well... That scene kind of bothered me because I love the rest of the movie so much. And that one scene was very much, why why shouldn't he do it? The mob has given him no reason not to. But when I thought about this movie as a character study, and I thought about where he was coming from and what all this meant to him, for him to shoot the guy would be just to use his language, the sort of thing that a quote-unquote bum would do, someone with quote-unquote, without the class, without the education, that would be handling it in the terms of the street. And what Terry has been searching for and has been lacking in this movie is he sees himself as so low in society and what he wants is to be the person with class, with education, higher up in society than where he is. And so I think when the priest talks to him, I think what he wants and the reason that it is so right for him to put the gun down and testify in court instead is because that is the way you handle it in society which is what he so desperately wants to be a part of and what he so desperately wants to move up in. And I think this is really highlighted by his intense insecurity when he's getting ready to testify, when he's getting ready to go in as a witness. And he says the wrong words and he answers the questions a bit strangely, you know, nervously. And he answers too quickly. And you can really see how nervous he is to be sitting in front of the courtroom. And in addition to the societal level, I think also him standing up in front of his peers, who this whole time have not liked him because they know he's in with the mob, to do it in front of them also, I think, is an act of bravery that he needed to perform for himself. And I think that is why it is so powerful that he chooses not to shoot the mob bosses even though, in my humble perspective, that might have handled the problem better. <laughs> but instead chooses to do it the straight and narrow way, the way that society handles it, because that's the society that he wants to move up in. Well, maybe you already saw that, but I think shifting the view of this movie from a sort of societal tale of good and evil to instead a character study first makes it a lot more palatable to the modern viewer secondly makes it a whole lot more interesting and finally i think really just allows you to appreciate a lot of the nuances that might fall through the cracks if you're instead just looking at this struggle between the underdogs and the mob bosses and I know that I certainly can't wait to see this movie again already because I feel like there are so many nuances that I didn't catch the first time that I'll be able to catch the next time. So that was quite a long discussion. Let me think if I missed anything. Oh, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but just to be sure... The I believe it's the second kiss between Marlon Brando and Eva Marie Saint when he goes into her apartment 
and they share a very passionate kiss right before his brother is killed. I've said, man, I'm glad I didn't count how many times I said it. Not a lot of interesting camera work, but the fact that we don't see the beginning of the kiss, we just see his back and her hand sticking out and then relaxing as they begin the kiss, and then we do a close-up as they sink down the wall. I just thought that was really, really beautiful and really powerful that you don't see the beginning. I just really, really like that choice. Okay, now that that's out of the way, very long discussion. Talked about how this being an older movie and having all the idiosyncrasies of that era contributed a lot to the story and to the performances and to making this movie a classic. Talked a lot about the simplicity of the movie, the directness, but tiny things that were still there that really added a lot to the story. Talked and talked and talked about the magnificent Marlon Brando. Gosh, he was such a good actor. How his performance walked the line between gentleness and toughness and his character's arc in his view of himself. And then we also talked about the Red Scare being in the background of this movie and how shifting the perspective from that of a morality tale to that of a character study really makes this movie a lot more interesting and a lot more compelling to the modern viewer. Well, that wraps up the very first episode of the Must See Movies podcast. And here's to many, many more. I hope you really enjoyed that discussion of On the Waterfront. If there's anything that you really liked that I said, that you really disagreed with, if you have any questions for me, or just anything else you'd like to add to the discussion that I didn't get to, I would really, really, really love it if you would contact me and let me know. My hope for this podcast is that it really becomes a discussion and a dialogue about these older movies that are not always talked about so actively anymore, so I'd really like for you to contact me. I'll put all that information in the description, but basically, you can contact me on Instagram, Twitter, or send me an email, mustseemoviespodcast at gmail.com. Very exciting name, I know. Until next week, until next Thursday, this has been the Must See Movie Podcast. I have been, and still am, Catherine, and I hope you have a wonderful week.